Well, good morning, church. Good to be with all of you today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Matthew. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. They're gonna be up on the screen as we go about. But if you're a guest to our church this weekend, we just wanna welcome you. My name is Daniel, and it's just an honor to have you joining us this weekend. And, you know, these are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today. And so we look to these moments as a community to come around the scriptures, to learn more about who Jesus is, to learn more about who God is and how are we called to respond to the saving message of Jesus Christ. And so again, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew chapter seven. And I'm gonna invite you all to stand to your feet for the reading of the word. Now this summer we're in a series called Storyteller. And we're gonna be looking at these different parables, these different stories that Jesus speaks of. And the one we're going to read today is the parable of the two builders. So let's begin to dive into this text together. These are the words of Jesus. And he would say this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Heavenly Father, we would just ask that you would take this word and take it deep into our hearts, Lord. Lord, we would pray against distraction right now. Anything that our minds would want to run off to, any problem that we have going on, any struggle, Lord, might we be able to focus our attention on you and what it is that you would have for us in this moment. Lord, we are not here by accident. We are not in this text by accident. There is something that you would have for each and every individual, including myself, Lord God. So would you speak clearly today? And would you do a good work in the heart and the life of your church, Father? We love you. We thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Recently, uh, I heard about a parenting style called uh, gentle parenting. Has anybody heard this? Any of you trying it? It was new to me too. My wife had mentioned it. I had seen it kind of popping up on different social media platforms. But the the premise of it, I had to Google it because I really had no idea what was going on here. But let me tell you, this is what Google told me about gentle parenting. The gentle parent holds firm boundaries and gives a child choices instead of orders and eschews rewards, punishments, and threats. No sticker charts, no timeouts, no, I will turn this car around right now. (laughs) And as I read that, I thought, oh my goodness. Like, those are all my best tactics. (laughs) Threats, rewards, I mean, what type of dad am I? I'm not asking my daughter to do something and saying, if you do this, I will give you ice cream. That's my go-to. And so again, I'm a little skeptical. I was like, ah, there's no way that that's gonna work. I'm just gonna leave that to the gentle parents and I guess I'll be the opposite. What's that, a rough parent? I'm not sure, but I'm more comfortable with that way of doing things. That's what I know, right? And so Friday morning, my daughter is having a little bit of a meltdown. 
She wanted to play Shoots and Ladders, a new game that she got for her birthday, but she did not want her brother to play because the last time they played a game called Pretty Pretty Princess, he didn't play by the rules. He was throwing everything around and he would not wear the princess crown. He's three years old. You got to give the kid a break, right? But she was adamant that Otto was not going to play Shoots and Ladders. And we're like, listen, we just want to have this precious family moment. Can we please just all play together? And she was not having it. So in the midst of her freaking out, I'm trying all my typical tactics, right? Rewards and threats and all the things that I would normally do and nothing is calming her down. So I thought, what the heck? Let's try the gentle parenting thing. And so I said, Astoria, let me give you a couple choices. Okay, we can either do this, we can either do this, or we can either do this. What do you want to choose? And she thought about it for a moment and she actually began to calm down and she chose option one, which was to allow Otto to come and play and let us have this nice little family moment. Now, to be honest with you, every one of her nightmares came true. He was terrible, he threw everything all over the place, he ruined it all, but that's not the point. The point is this. <laughs> There's something about giving her a choice. And when I thought about this idea of choice, it actually made me think about the teachings of Jesus. You know, when Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount, which is the parable that we just read, he does not end it with a command. He doesn't end it with a threat. He ends it with a story. And it's a story not designed to entertain the hearer or the reader. It's a story that is designed to speak about the reality of the way things are and then to offer the listener or the hearer a choice. You have a choice to decide. Now, the medium of story is one that we see Jesus using all of the time throughout his teachings. In fact, about roughly 30% of his teachings were done in the form of story. And I think there's actually something very strategic about this. Because what neuroscience would tell us is that when someone shares a story, something unique is going on in the storyteller's brain, but also in the listener's brain. In fact, I, I was reading this article article called uh, The Neuroscience of Storytelling. And the writer would say this, that when we see or hear a story, the neurons in our brain fire in the same pattern as the speakers, a process known as neural coupling. You also hear it referred to as mirroring. These processes occur across many different areas of the brain and can induce a shared contextual model of the situation. The motor and sensory cortices as well as the frontal cortex, are all engaged during the story creation and processing. These networks are nurtured and solidified by feelings of anticipation of the story's resolution involving the input of your brain's form of candy that we call dopamine. There's something about telling a story. Now, Jesus sets up his story with these words in verse 24, and we read them just a minute ago. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Now remember, Jesus just said that statement based upon what he had just communicated in the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he addresses what most teachers at some point need to address. He talks about the nature of reality, he talks about what is the good life. He talks about what is a good person and how does one become a good person? The Sermon on the Mount is where we get such teachings as blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Sermon on the Mount is also where we get that teaching that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, provides teaching on divorce, on murder, on adultery, on lust. This is where we get that famous teaching of Jesus about if someone slaps you on the right cheek, what does Jesus tell us that we have to do? We turn the other cheek as well. It's where we get Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44. If you, ha- you have heard it said this way, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He also gives teachings on giving to the needy, how to pray, fasting, judging others, and even the issue of anxiety. And so he says, everyone who hears these words, these teachings of mine, and does them will be like. See, this parable is really not that hard to understand, but you have to get this part. Before we can get into talking about the foundation, before we can get into all of the other aspects about the storms coming, you have to get this little portion. Who hears these words of mine and does them. See, with Jesus, it's not just about hearing the words. It's about doing something with them. See, the Christian life is not limited to the goal of only knowing information about Jesus. It's not just about accumulating knowledge about Jesus. It's not just about understanding his teachings on living in the kingdom of God. It's about our willingness to take those words and to put them into practice, to know them and then to embody them in our everyday life. It's not talking about just knowing what is right or talking about what is right. It's about living out the way that is right. And in fact, it is a way. It is a way of life. It is a vision for your life. It is our really desire as followers of Jesus to consistently orientate or reorientate ourselves, our spirit, our, our hearts, our minds, our bodies around the way of Jesus. This is two words that you've heard us say a lot recently, the idea of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, having right doctrine, having right beliefs about Jesus, about the way of scripture, understanding the canon of scripture. But then also orthopraxy, which would say, how do I integrate this into my daily reality? And so Jesus sets up the parable in that way that there is a promised reality for those who would do, and there's a promised reality for those who do not. For the one who hears and puts the words of Jesus into practice, they are like, and he says the, the story, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Yet everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now again, this parable is not too difficult to understand. You've got these two builders and, and Jesus is using the, the metaphor of them building a house really as a metaphor for building a life. 
And the wise builder is one who has been making the decision to build on the firm foundation. And remember what Jesus said before, to build on that firm foundation means that this wise builder took the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and actually began to apply them to their daily reality. That's what equated them to being wise. They took time to dig down to the bedrock, to the reality, to the truth of the scriptures, to build a life on the foundation that is what? Reliable and stable and eternal. Whereas the foolish builder was not intentional with their foundation. They did not take time to dig down to the bedrock to to build a life on the firm rock. They built it on sand, a foundation that is unreliable, that is instable, that is temporal. Now, from a distance, both houses probably look similar. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't looked at my foundation recently. I'm assuming it's fine. Everything seems to be in order. From a distance, they might look the same. But the reality is there's something very different going on at the foundation of these two. I love this from Susie Silk and John Tyson from their book, Kingdom Vision. Both people hear Jesus' teaching. Both people appreciate it. One of them does it, one doesn't do it. In our modern world, both people probably call themselves Christian, attend a local church, are in a small group, and even worship with their hands raised. One leaves the Sunday service and does what Jesus says and practices it. The other person doesn't. And then the financial, relational, or circumstantial drama hits. The second person completely collapses while the first person weathers the storm. Why? Because her life was built on following Jesus, while his life was built on the world, which Christianity was only filling a small segment See, the reality is this, the quality of your foundation for your life, it will be revealed. Something about this text we have to understand, it's not saying that if you've built it on Jesus, guess what? You get to avoid the storms of life. That's not what this text is saying. In fact, if you have come into this church with a, a, maybe a theology that would say, if I believe in Jesus, good things are going to happen for me all the time, can I just tell you, unfortunately, that's a lie. And there are many people in this room this morning who would be able to tell you, listen, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus a long time. I'm building on the firm foundation and I've dealt with a lot of difficulty in my life. I've lost a loved one when I was not expecting to. I've dealt with the cancer diagnosis. So the storms are going to come for both of these builders. The streams will rise, the the wind will blow. You will not be able to avoid that or to escape it, but the question is going to be, will your life be able to continue to stand in the midst of the difficulty or will you, like the parable, say, will your life fall with a great crash? Building on the rock of Jesus is done, again, not through just simply hearing the teachings of Jesus or knowing the teachings of Jesus, or being able to articulate the teachings of Jesus. I can stand here, and I'm the one who studied this for the last two weeks. I can read this. I can tell you I know it in my mind, but if I am not embodying it, it does not matter. Don't be impressed by someone just because they might have knowledge about Jesus. Be impressed because you've seen it begin to change and transform their life. 
And that firm foundation is, again, established through the putting into practice. It comes from the doing. It happens when we, again, embody our lives to the words and the teachings of Jesus. You know, this is what Jesus' brother James, he speaks of this in his letter. In fact, I think when he was writing this, he must have been thinking back to when he heard his, his brother give the Sermon on the Mount. James said it this way, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like somebody who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be what? They will be blessed in what they do. There are certain promises for those who practice the way of Jesus. You will be blessed. Those who practice the way of Jesus will, will be able to weather the storms of misunderstanding and disappointment. Weather the storms of cynicism and doubt, of pandemics and political polarization, of suffering and even persecution. Not to say it will be easy. That does not mean when you lose the loved one, when you are not expecting it, that you will not feel hurt, that you will not feel pain, that it will not be difficult for you. You are not going to avoid the emotions of being a human. You're just going to have this inner stability that may not make sense to anybody else an inner disposition of strength and peace. The more we hear, the more we do, the more we respond, the more we obey to Jesus, a strength will develop in our inner soul. Now the question with a, a text like this, again, it's not super hard to understand. Hear the words of Jesus, hear the teachings of Jesus, understand the teachings of the New Testament, understand the canon of scripture, see the, the whole reality of what God is speaking to his creation, and then do those things. It seems easy. <laughs> but how many know that there are many hindrances to us practicing these things? There's many things in our life that that begin to inhibit these things. And so as I was thinking this past week and just praying, I was asking the Lord, Lord, would you just reveal to me what might be the things that there would be some people in this space this weekend that have been hindering their ability to practice your teachings, to practice the words of Jesus. And so I wanna to speak to that group of people for just a moment. And when I say that group of people, I mean all of us. Let's make sure that's very clear. And as I share through these different hindrances to obedience, my hope would be that you would open your hearts up to receive from the Holy Spirit, that uh, you'd allow the Spirit to reveal to you what's yours. Which one of these re resonates with you? As I was praying on Thursday specifically, asking, Lord, what might we even say in this moment? I, I was, my attention was drawn to Luke 6, 46, where Jesus says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why are those of us in this room who would call him Lord, Lord, but decide not to do what he says? What has allowed us that type of thinking? Why does the foolish builder build on the sand when they could build on the rock? 
Now in the parable, Jesus does not tell us, and I think that's actually very intentional because it allows us to have this type of moment where we say, Spirit, what is it for me? What's hindering me? And so the first one I wanna talk about is uh, this idea of detachment. Here's what I would say. We have detached salvation from discipleship. Now, before anybody gets theologically weird on me, I am not talking about a salvation that is, is provided through works. We know that that is bad theology. It's not true. We receive our salvation through the free gift of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. But the idea of salvation not leading to discipleship, that is a foreign concept in the New Testament scriptures. You do not see a group of people making this decision to say, I love Jesus for this. I'll trust him here, but not here. Here's what I would propose. How can you trust him on the cross, but you can't trust him on the throne? How can you trust that work to be complete? But then when Jesus says, I have a vision for humanity, I have a vision for life, follow my teachings. Why would you trust that, but not trust that? Because we've detached ourselves from that reality. A.W. Tozer says it like this, a notable heresy, now we're really getting there, has come into being throughout the evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to, that salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Dallas Willard would make this argument. We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. But many in the church have detached ourselves from salvation, from discipleship. And when we do that, here's what happens. We detach ourselves from God's mission and our meaning. When we detach salvation from discipleship, we detach ourselves from our ultimate purpose. We detach ourselves from God's vision for our life. Here's the kicker. You as a human being, you need a vision for your life. You need purpose in your life. You need meaning in your life. You need to find something that would lead you to a deep sense of fulfillment in your life. And if you detach it from following the way of Jesus, you will find it elsewhere. And this is what happens. We go from detachment to now giving way to deception. There are many in the church who are walking around deceived by the ideologies of the world. There are many of us who have been deceived by these ideologies that offer a good life outside of a relationship with Christ. The post-Christian and secular age in which we live attempts to progress in life without the presence of God. But the problem is this, we as human beings were created by God and we're designed by God, and we're designed to be in loving union with God. So we cannot progress as a society without the presence of God. So all of these different visions that are out there for you to, to run after, they're all going to leave you very, very empty. See, everything has a vision for your life. The secular age in which we live has a vision for your life. The political left and the political right has a vision for your life. Media, film, and TV have a vision for your life. Social media influencers have a vision for your life. They all scream to you, this is the good life. Do this, 
Be about this. Become this type of person. This is your mission. This is your purpose. Here's how you might find identity. Here's where you will find fulfillment. But the problem is this. All they can offer you is a dreary substitute to the presence of God. All they can offer you is empty promises. In fact, Proverbs 14, 12 says it this way. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Jesus tells us that life and life of abundance flows from him to those who follow him. So there's this detachment that's taken place, opening us up to deception. And I think what actually exasperates the deception is actually the distraction that we find ourselves in. It's hard to stay focused in the world that we live in, is it not? There is so much vying for your attention You know, media says, consume me. And films and TV say, watch me. Advertisements say, click me. Apps like Tinder say, swipe me. Instagram says, scroll me. Facebook says, like me. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus says, come and follow me and you will find rest. But here's the problem. We've lost his voice in the midst of the distraction. Many of us, we've lost his voice. You know, my son Otto, I like to do a lot of silly voices when I tell him stories or when even just when I'm just talking to him. I would do a bunch of them now, but it would be deeply embarrassing. That's for our home only. But what's interesting about my son is there always comes a point when I continue to use these silly little voices, eventually he gets over it. And not over it like, oh, dad, you're so funny. Over it like sad. And he'll look at me and he says, you don't sound like a real daddy. You don't sound like a real daddy. I know at that point when he says it, it's time to shut up, Daniel, and start talking like your normal voice. But you know what I was thinking when I thought about this week? See, Otto knows the voice of his dad. And in the midst of all the different voices that are coming at him, eventually he says, no, 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 that's not my daddy. Where's my real daddy? Here's the problem, church. We have stopped knowing how to listen to the voice of God. We have stopped giving ourselves to daily reading of the scriptures so that we can understand the voice of God so that in the midst of all of the deception in the world, in the midst of all of the distraction, you might be able to say, that is not the voice of my dad. That is not the voice of God. That is not the teaching of Jesus. And you'll have a lot of people who mean well, who say they follow the way of Jesus, but you have to be smart enough to decide that's not it. There is a lot going on in the world that wants to mask itself as practicing the way of Jesus, that wants to parade itself like it's Jesus, that wants to rub that Christian veneer over it like it is Jesus. And I'm telling you, you have to be wise enough to realize it is not. But you will not understand that unless you know the voice of God, unless you yourself are giving your your life over to the scriptures to understanding the reality of who Jesus is, to taking time to understand what would be of him and what would be not. So this detachment and deception and distraction, you know, oftentimes what it does, it leads us to being discouraged. Many of us, we're discouraged right now. Like we think we know what is right, but we've been so distracted and so deceived so detached from discipleship, so detached from living out the words of Jesus that we just have this sense of discouragement in our heart. 
And what can happen actually is the discouragement can lead to being disillusioned with God. It's wrongful disillusionment, but it is disillusioned nonetheless. So if any of that resonated with you, good. I wanted it to. The Lord wanted it to. Because see, now what gets to happen is you have a choice. Will you realize maybe some of the the worldly ideologies that you've given yourself to, some of the deception that maybe you have fallen way to? Will you realize that maybe you are an example of one who maybe trusts in Jesus' work on the cross, but you do not trust Jesus with your life, that you have detached salvation from discipleship? Or maybe you realize that you are just so distracted that you wouldn't know the voice of God even if it was right in front of you because you're so used to all the other noise around you. If so, guess what? You have a beautiful opportunity even right now to repent, to confess, and to continue to move forward in the way of Jesus. See, what the Lord would say to us this morning is don't lose heart. Okay, you've been deceived. We all have at some point. Okay, you've been distracted. You've been detached. At some point, all of us have. I have been that way as well. But when I realize that, when we realize that as a community, we have to then take time to confess that reality, to repent, and then to continue to move forward, allowing just the the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What is the hindrance maybe for you? Understand it, grapple with it, confess it, repent from it, and then continue to walk forward in what God would have for you. Now we're gonna close in just a moment, but before we do, there's a group of people who I wanna encourage this morning. And I really felt this was important this past week, not just to talk about what, you know, all the things that hinder us, but also I think that there needs to be some encouragement this morning. Here's the reality. Some of you in the midst of the past three years that have been difficult, and I know I'm just using the past three years because that's kind of what I feel like we always talk about. The past three years have been so hard, but they have been really hard. But can I just say this? There's a group of people that I think what Jesus would want to say to you today is well done, good and faithful servant, well done. Well done, not getting sucked into all the political garbage out there. Well done when you sat at the Thanksgiving table and everybody was rattling off their own opinions about what they felt about this. Well done shutting your mouth. Well done for the sake of peace in your family. You would strive to live a quiet life. Well done. Well done in all the difficulty of maybe your group not getting to be together. I talked with a woman last night, a group of older women in our church. They've been Zooming their little Zooms off for the past few years, just trying to keep the group together. Well done, that group. Well done in the midst of conflict with community members that you didn't leave. Well done when even in moments where you thought, gosh, like, when are we gonna start doing this? And when are we gonna start? But you didn't leave this space. Well done. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for not quitting when it got difficult. Thank you for continuing to say, you know what? Maybe this isn't all perfect or whatnot, but I'm gonna stay faithful to this house because I believe that God is doing something here. Well done. 
see, this is the beautiful reality about when you focus on wanting to practice the way of Jesus and you want to really have your life become to look more like him. Here's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter what happens in life. Nothing can affect you growing to become more like Jesus. Take every other vision that someone might have for your life and there are so many different things that can disrupt it. But if you wanna become more like Jesus, it doesn't matter what happens, God can use it to form you. I gotta tell you, church, I love Jesus more today than I did three years ago. I am so sold out to the way of Jesus. You couldn't convince me otherwise. I know that this is the reality of life. I know there is a God who created all of this. I know that sin entered the world, yes, but I do know that God was good enough to take care of that. I do know that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. I do know that his blood justifies me. I have received the free gift of salvation. And I also know that Jesus has a vision for my life. And I'm telling you, if you are kind of that sense of instability in your life right now, that sense of worry, that sense of dread, that sense of, I just don't quite know what to do. I'm telling you, follow the way of Jesus. Just give it a try and see what might happen. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand to our feet. And we're gonna sing this song. It's called Build My Life, very fitting. And I want you just to stand and maybe even ask God a few questions. Lord, what's been hindering me from falling after your ways? Would you reveal it to me even in the midst of this song? And then Lord, would you give me empowerment to do something with that? Maybe for some of you who have been just so faithful, so trying to do this well, maybe right now is just an opportunity for God just to love you and to bless you and to encourage you and to just flood you with a sense of his presence. And so Lord, we take this moment and before we rush out of here into the frozen tundra in the foyer, Lord God, we would say, do something unique in this moment. We're not done here yet, Father. Lord, I'm not done wanting to hear from you. I'm not done wanting to receive from you. I'm not done having you convict areas of my own life. So Father, we sit and we stand and we worship and we engage believing that you will do something in these moments. Let's begin to sing, church.